Welcome to the Book of Mormon Evidence Podcast with host Rod Meldrum. This week's Come Follow Me supplemental study is Lesson 33, Helaman 1-6, through The Rock of Our Redeemer. Rod's guest this week is Pamela Romney Openshaw. She is the author of Promises of the Constitution, Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. Pam is married to her sweetheart, Robert Openshaw, who's a retired colonel in the United States Air Force. They have raised eight hardworking children and many grandchildren after 55 years of marriage. They have traveled all over the world. Pam says, the document of the United States Constitution gave us the greatest prosperity in the modern world and has been twisted and ignored into a shadow of its former greatness. She says, I found my passion for the Constitution and developed a yearning for the politics of good moral government, serving as an elected delegate from Nebraska to President Carter's 1980 White House Conference on Families. Welcome everyone. Uh, we're glad to have you back. Uh, I am really excited about uh, our, our, our guest uh, this week is going to be uh, Pam Openshaw. And uh, she is a, an expert on uh, government and, uh, and, and uh, freedom and liberty and things like that. And uh, so we're going to be actually talking about this is Alma chapters uh, 36, 37, and 38. Welcome, everyone, to this, uh, this week's episode or, or podcast here of the Come Follow Me program. Uh, we have, this is actually a continuation of a previous one that we just did a couple of weeks ago. So uh, we have uh, with us Pamela Romney Openshaw, and uh, she is with us here in the in, in, in studio here. Uh, we're excited about uh, this, this information that we're kind of going to be talking about, because this is, this is Helaman. This is where we're getting into the nuts and bolts of what is happening in our day. If the Book of Mormon is a parallel history of the United States of America, this is where we're at today. And that's, so that's, that's where we want to talk about this in some detail. And so I have my, my friend Pam here with me to, uh, to talk about the, the government and some of the, the things that we're seeing going on here um, in the United States of America. Again, this is uh, we're assuming that you've already read the, uh, the lesson here from Come Follow Me Manual. And we're going to go do a deep dive here on some, uh, some exciting information here as we, as we get into the book of Helaman. So uh, if you haven't, uh, we had uh, Pam already introduced herself in the one about uh, three weeks ago, but just as a quick introduction, maybe go ahead and, and uh, for somebody who's just joining us right now, just give us a quick introduction about uh, your okay. background. Uh, my name is Pamela Romney Openshaw. My husband, Bob, and I teach the Constitution and travel the country doing that. We're the parents of eight children and 34 <laughs> grandchildren. Um, we have a deep love for the Constitution of the United States and have created a series of materials, a book called Promises of the Constitution, yep. where we teach the Constitution in short segments and then created two additional books to go along with that to make a course of study for children, for families, and for senior citizens. Uh, we've also created some additional materials with that. We speak at the Book of Mormon Evidences conferences with Rod and consider him to be a good friend, and we're delighted to be here today. To <laughs> well, we're excited about this, and, uh, and so let, if you, if you uh, haven't already done so, if you have your annotated edition of the Book of Mormon, which is our, our um, reference material here that we're going to be using, uh, you can turn to page 343 and the beginning of the Book of Helaman. Now... Uh, now, I'm going to go ahead and start off. This is this is clear back. Um, this is about fifty years, fifty-two years before Christ. Right. So we're getting close to that time when Christ is going to be coming here, um, and of course, in our day, we're getting closer, obviously, to the time when Christ is going to be coming. So this is kind of becoming more apropos to what, what's happening with our day. This is in the fortieth year of the reign of the judges, and uh, and so we have uh, basically a situation going on here with but with Pahoran, or I, I like to call him Pahoran myself. 
Um, <laughs> okay. But uh, but uh, he he had died and uh, has gone the way of all the earth, and there also became a serious contention going on, and uh, the, concerning the judgment seat about the who was going to be the uh, the leader of the of the Nephite group basically, and there were three sons of Pehoran. He apparently he had other sons as well, but these were the three who were kind of contending for. I don't know if you want to call it the presidency, <laughs> basically. Uh, the, the, the three sons, uh, one of them was named after Peheron himself. Um, another one was uh, Pankai and Pakumani. And uh, these three began to, uh, to um, I, I guess they were probably campaigning, wouldn't you say? They established political parties. You can definitely see that going on. It's a, yeah. it's a great forerunner for what goes on in the United States today. Yeah, exactly. And in verse 5, it says, Nevertheless, it came to pass that Peheron, the, the younger, was was appointed by the voice of the people to be a chief judge and a governor over the people of Nephi. So this is the, the so they did this by the voice of the people. And I've I've often wondered how do you, you know back in that time frame, uh, I, I could see maybe having a whole bunch of people kind of get together and then say, okay, who's for you? And then everybody goes, yay! <laughs> you know? Well, remember that they had written documents. Yes, Because exactly. when King Mosiah formulated a new system of government, he wrote it down and he sent it among the people. And then when he drafted a new system of laws, he also yeah. sent that among the people, so he assumed it was a written document. Cause, so they could very yeah. easily have had a written system of casting That's votes. right. Yeah. And that, that, that's what I was kind of getting, getting at, basically, even though it says the voice of the people... Um, I don't think it was a uh, an audible, you know, who had the loudest, you know, at, at the uh, the loudness meter, you know, or whatever, <laughs> whoever won that. Uh-huh. Uh, I think it had to be probably by by casting votes. Well, and they they had a form of a representative government, just as we have representative government today, because they were electing their judges, and so we, the voice of the people literally is predominating in the land, and that makes it very similar to what we do today. Yeah. Yeah, so we have, so so basically, it was by the voice of the people that uh, that Pahoran the uh, second, now he he, he is uh, basically installed as the as the new high priest or the chief judge, I should say, and uh, and, and and one of the other sons, Pecumani, he he kind of accepts it. He says, okay, I, I, it's good, I got beat, okay, that's fine, <laughs> okay, mm-hmm. but uh, the other son, Paanke, um, he had a problem. Well, so it's interesting that you see two variations there on how to handle an election. One on how to handle it in a wise and appropriate way to your system of government. And they accept the, the will of the people. Yes, and then you have the other one who goes into actual treason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it says in, in uh, let's see, he says that verse 7, he says, But behold, Pionkai and that part of the people that were desirous that he should be their governor was exceedingly wroth. Therefore, he went about to flatter away those people to rise up in rebellion against their brethren. It came to pass that as he was doing this, behold, he was taken, was tried according to the voice of the people and condemned unto death. Uh, for he raised up a rebellion and sought to destroy the liberty of the people. Interesting how they say he was tried by the voice of the people. I wonder if they had a jury system. We don't see any evidence. At least I've never seen At any this point, evidence. Yeah. But I yeah. wonder if they had a jury system. Yeah. Well, well, this is the reign of the judges. So mm-hmm. my assumption is that they had a, a, a series of judges that would do that and, and make the judgment happen. But maybe not. You know, we just don't know. We don't yeah. know enough about that system of government. Yeah, I wish we had. It, yeah. I wish we had the other two thirds of the record. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I mean, how much more information might we oh, have? There? It'd be awesome. Yeah. But anyway, so. Um, so then, so so he's basically taken out. I mean, must have been pretty pretty hard for Pahoran the first to see one of his sons actually just completely rebel and then end up yeah. his his civilization, his culture finds his son guilty and basically puts him to death. 
Yeah, because this is a leadership. This is one of your leadership families. Interesting about the Book of Mormon that you see leadership fall into families. I don't see any indication at all that that was a determined or programmed part of their government. But they seem to have turned to specific families, and Pehoran's family was definitely one of those that was considered in that. So it is sad to see that happen to his sons. Yeah, it's happened. They, they all three of them. They all three of them made a tragic end because two yeah. were murdered, and the third one, uh, we don't we don't ever hear that the sentence was carried out, but we know that he was condemned to be executed. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Uh, but it, but the second one basically that so the uh, the people who were following uh, uh, Paankai, basically they even though he had been taken out, they still refused to accept the fact. Mm-hmm. And so it says in, in here in verse 9, and now when those people who were desirous that he should be the governor saw that he was condemned to death, before, therefore they were angry, and they sent forth a, a guy by the name of Kishkumen, okay? uh-huh. uh, even to the judgment seat of Peharan, and then, and then he then ended up uh, killing Peharan on his judgment seat. So, so uh-huh. e- even though they took, off, they took out the leader, the other people were still organized enough that they basically decided, okay, we, we are not going to put up with this, and they, and they killed Peharan well, on the judgment seat. It, it's interesting that this is the beginning of the Gadianton robbers, and if we were to describe in modern terminology what the Gadianton robbers are, we'd say that's the first terrorist group we saw, Yeah. the actual terrorist group operating through the Book of Mormon. Yep, yep. And anyway, so this Kiskuman is an interesting guy, so he kills him, and uh, they, they, they try to get him, but he runs away, he's... he's, he's must be a fast runner because he basically he, he escapes them. Uh, and it's in verse 11, it says, And he went unto those that sent him, and they all entered into a covenant. Yes. Okay, this, 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 is, this is where the, this is the evil covenant here. It says, by, by swearing by their everlasting maker that they would tell no man that Kishkumen had killed Peharon. So we we know that because we have earlier mentions of this in uh, Alma 36 and 37, we have mentions of the secret combinations. So we know there had to have been something like that existing, mm-hmm. but it's these Gadianton robbers who bring about the downfall of the Nephites. And so it's it's uh, memorable to us that we are that the writer, that Mormon, when he translated the Book of Mormon, gave us this history of the Gadiantons, and we get to see that group operating. And I think there's a reason why we see that. I think that as God inspired Mormon, they knew what was going to happen in our day and age and they knew that we needed to see then what we were going to experience now yeah uh in the previous uh, in the in previous a few weeks ago uh we talked about the importance of the history and uh, that's kind of what you're talking about right yeah. here you know, th- how important this history is that we understand um and i think that actually applies to our, our nation today uh, there are those who want to basically delete the history about the the the, the you know slavery and abolitionists and 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 try to just just ignore that whole history. But brothers and sisters, when you ignore history, you have a major potential problem. What if we all just ignored what Hitler did in his brown shirts? What if we just ignored that? We didn't know that history. Then we are destined to eventually, at some point in time, we're going to come back and make the same mistakes. So tearing down the statues of the of the Confederate uh, generals and so forth, um, they were still individuals. They fought for what the things that they believed in. And that kind of stuff, they uh, they lost, and thank heaven that they did. But let us not make that mistake again. Let us not have to shed more blood for that to to uh, to be put out and that slavery to be abolished and done away with. Well, so 
this is a good point, I think, to discuss the concept of conservative versus progressive. Some people use the term liberal. You can you play with that a little bit. What we're talking about on the one hand, the conservatives are the individuals who believe in maintaining the law. They well, believe well, And also traditional. You could call them yes, traditionalists. The, traditionalists. The, the people who yes. believe in the early tradition of yes. whether it be God or, or other things. So you, that's, that's kind of what a, a conservative is. They want to conserve the yes. previous you want to hold yeah. to the law that exactly. you have had. And so in that context, you're going to revere what the prophet said, because who gives us the law? Well, it's the law is given to us through the scriptures and, of course, through the history books. Mm-hmm. So we're going to believe what the prophets tell us, and we're going to believe what previous uh, leaders have given us. We're going to take this system of law that we have because the, there's such a necessity to maintain a system of law. You don't want the system of law changing constantly. If it does, how do you know what, what's going to go on? For instance, you want to expand your business, but if the law is not stable, then you don't know whether expanding your business yeah. is going to be to your benefit five years from now or not. You don't know yeah. what to leave to your grandchildren in terms of what property belongs to you. You you don't even know that the structure of the family is going to be the same. So you that have is, to know that the law is yeah. going to stay stable. That, that's, that's, one of the, that's one of the things that causes what we call third world countries. Exactly. The thing that creates third world countries to a large extent is when you when there is no uh, law that everybody can adhere to. Um, I know I know personal friends of mine who wanted to help some some countries in Africa. And they had all this money to they were going to go and do all this good and so forth, but uh, they they realized that they couldn't even do it because the 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 government there was so corrupt. If they gave money to the government, yes. it never made it out to the people. It never made it out to do the projects. They just pocketed the money. Oh well, take a look. So they at our so they, they couldn't do it anymore. Yeah, take a look at our foreign aid. Have you seen it benefit any of the companies that yeah. countries that <laughs> countries? Yeah. Okay, well yeah. let's not go off there. So the, so the, talk I, about progressive. Well, go ahead. Yeah. So the opposite of that is the progressive law. Um, Bob and I, my husband and I, went into a whole series of of dictionaries that we have, going back to Webster's 1828 Dictionary and coming clear forward to modern dictionaries, and we were looking up what the terms conservative and progressive mean, because those are the two terminologies we were working with. A, A progressive is one who believes that the law must change because the people change. And so a progressive is one who's constantly looking to change the law, improve the law, the the law must evolve, it it must become something better. Well, how do you establish any kind of stability? If you're going to change the law, what's it going to be tomorrow? What's it going to be Does God change constantly? Absolutely not. God is unchanging, right? And And his law is unchanging. So when you change from God's law, if that's what it was established with, which it was because of the Ten Commandments that the law of the United States was originally founded upon. And so we still believe in the Ten Commandments. Commandments. We still believe in the Ten Commandments. If you don't believe in that, then that would be progressivism or basically not wanting to continue to conform to the original law, which was given by God. And that's but we the, know better. That's humanism. And that's the definition of instability, is yeah. a, a formulation of government or any other group that's based on this concept that the law has to constantly change. It takes away all stability from the culture. It takes away the security and the safety of the people because yeah. you don't know what you're headed into. So, if, so it, this conservative versus progressive is so very, very important. And in the constitution, Excuse me. In the Book of Mormon, we see this happen. We see several times in the Book of Mormon that people became dissatisfied with the law. And so they asked that the law be changed. This is your definition of progressivism. You were watching the conservative or the traditional as opposed to the 
progressive, or perhaps you'll call them liberal, but we're, we're seeing individuals that are saying, no, I don't like what we have. I'm requesting that what we have change. We certainly see that after King Mosiah implemented his beautiful new system of government. The people had a group that came forward and asked that the law be changed very shortly after that, within just a few, within just a few years, they were coming forward and saying, no, we want the law changed. No, definition of instability when you want to come out there and you want to constantly change the law. Yeah. Can't do it. Not and be stable. Yeah. Yeah, because you're sending mixed messages about what uh, what is and what isn't right. Exactly right, and yeah. and it's and that's but that's why they call themselves progressive. They believe that they're progressive, and you mentioned yeah. humanism, and that's very interesting because the entire concept of progressivism is based on the concept of evolution. We were lesser before, and we are becoming more today, and therefore our law needs to change to keep up with what we have become. I'm very sorry, folks, but that line of reasoning absolutely does not work at all. If you believe that law of reasoning, where are you yeah. putting Adam and Eve in this entire spectrum? Well, and, 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 where, are the, just, where do the basis of the law come from? Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, if, if the law came from God, then if you change the law, then you're basically changing God's laws. That's right, and God doesn't change. But if you don't believe in God, then basically it makes it easy to say, well, it did, that didn't come from God. So exactly basically, right. and so anything that we choose goes. If, if we if we think that uh, it's no longer immoral for people to just have, uh, you know, relations Whatever. with each other, you know, willy nilly, and it doesn't really matter. It's just it's just the it's just the natural beast. You know, animals are kind of like the way, although. Some animals are actually more monogamous than the humans. Then we're becoming. But but bottom line is is that uh, yeah that, you know, that, that this just needs to evolve and change. Um, but that's basically an assumption that what was originally there wasn't the right thing. It wasn't wasn't of God. Well, and so that's why it's been fascinating to me see see the universal model evolve as a, a, yeah. a new look at science, an authentic look at science, because it's all based on the principles of God's law. Yeah. And that's precisely what we're talking about. Law cannot change. God does not change. Human nature doesn't change. The principles upon which we'll all be evaluated and judged, they don't change. Yep. So let's so let's talk about that in, in relation to these uh, these these uh, first few uh, chapters in the Helaman because this okay. is because what we're going to see is that the law didn't didn't change but the people did change. In fact, they had wild swings in this in a very short period of time from about forty uh, the fortieth year of the reign of judges up to uh, when this basically ends up here, which is about sixty two. So we're talking about uh, about twenty two years or so that these are going on. Um, yeah, so the end of 68. So it's actually about uh, 28 years. So about the span of a, a, of a generation, generation really, yeah. is what we're talking about here. And, and to see how the wild, these wild swings back and forth in this time frame is pretty in incredible. Well, the thing that's so fascinating to me, and it's so prevalent through the Book of Mormon, is that unrighteousness leads to the disobedience in civil law. It also leads to the disobedience in spiritual law. Yes. But the civil law and the spiritual Definitely law are, are both of them part of what human beings are all about and part of what we happen, have to have in order to remain stable. So they become unrighteous, they violate the spiritual law, and they also violate the civil law. And a lot of times they try to violate the spiritual law because, they're, because they're, their conscience is searing them, mm -hmm. because of their violating of the spiritual laws so in order to assuage their 
conscience instead of repenting they want to change the law they want to change the law exactly exactly that. so that's exactly. and that's where progressivism comes in they want exactly. to change the law to basically assuage their their guilt if they will from from well, the, the previous law there are a lot of people that become progressives just because they want to be nice and they want to be kind to other people but you need to understand what the foundation of that law is and the foundation of progressivism is that there is no god yeah. Or you erase him, or you make him change in order to adapt to your principles, or you find an excuse to justify. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. So, so basically, so two of uh, of uh, of um, Peharon's sons are now gone, and so the the last one, which is Pecumeni, he's appointed the chief judge. He was appointed according to the voice of the people to be the chief judge and the governor of the of the land. This is verse thirteen. And then there's this guy by the name of Coriantumr. <laughs> All right, so Coriantumr shows up, and he uh, now now he is actually the leader. He, he's been he's been called as the leader of the Lamanites. Um, the, the the king of the Lamanites is um, what's his Tubala. name? Tubala. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so he's a king of the Lamanites. You can see that in verse uh, sixteen, and uh, and he basically allows this guy who is. Um, and by the way, Tubalai was the son of Amaron. So yes, we, 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 saw, we saw, the, we saw the, mm-hmm. the, the, yeah. the end of him <laughs> yes. not too long ago. Um, so and the, from Coriander, we learned a lot about warfare. Yes. Do not march into the heart of enemy territory <laughs> when you have no supply lines to back you up. <laughs> you, you, bet, you better Guess have, what? You missed something you, you, you need to have better reconnaissance <laughs> information. <laughs> they weren't the strongest in the center of their lands. They were the strongest in the borders of their lands. And you know that the Book of Mormon yeah. is a text on many different topics, one of them yeah. being warfare. Yeah, that's right. That's right. There's, there's some really good, actually, uh, uh, you know, strategy. Mm-hmm. Warfare strategy in the Book of Mormon as well. <laughs> okay, so in verse 14, it came to pass in the 40 and first year, the Lamanites gathered together an innumerable army of men. Now, this is interesting things, folks, because we have a tendency to think of the Nephites as being the ones that had the armor and the headplates and the breastplates and so forth. This uh, tells us a whole different story. They learned from their earlier getting their behinds kicked by the Nephites because they had all this armor and everything. So now they, they said, okay, we're not going to be stupid. We're not going to show up in just nothing but a loincloth this time or a lambskin. Uh, this time they're, they're coming ready for war. Okay, but let me introduce an idea to you. This is one that's been coming to me a lot. I, I've searched the Book of Mormon. So I, I don't know what happens to you when you read the Book of Mormon, but I mean, I, I listen to the I scriptures. forget about time usually. <laughs> <laughs> I listen to the Book of Mormon rather than reading it because of the trouble that I'm having with my eyes. But um, if you, as you're going through the Book of Mormon, I've, each time I go through, I'm looking for something different. You know, I'll pick out a series of principles that I'm going to look for this time through the Book yeah, of Mormon. Yeah. And one of the times I went through, I was looking, I wanted to answer the question. I, I'm going back to the Second Amendment. Who had weapons and who didn't? Now, we know that the Nephites had weapons because we see over and over again, we see Captain Moroni come in, we see Moroni come in, all of them, and they pick out their weapons and they take them with them. So we know the well, Nephites well, they had, had They had better weapons. Yeah. But, but the Lamanites have, still had weapons. Well, but, but, yeah. but now let me pose a question yeah. to you. There's one place when uh, Amalekai, I believe it's when Amalekai is coming after the Lamanites and they don't want to go to war against the Nephites. And notice, they all run to the hill Oneida, which is the place of arms. Every time I read that, I say to myself, did the Lamanites not have the right to possess their own personal weapons? Would, mm, could their personal weapons have possibly been kept in one specific location? Because otherwise, so why otherwise? Yeah. would they be running to the hill the Oneida to get their weapons? 
So I've been looking for more, and I found, and I don't remember now where it was, but just this last time through the Book of Mormon, I found another place. It's just kind of a, a hint <laughs> that that might have been the case earlier in uh, Nephi, Jacob, I can't remember where, yeah. not in there, but yeah. a little further on through there. So I'm, I'm watching for that. Any of you reading the Book of Mormon, I'd encourage you to look for that. I, and I would encourage you also to pick specific topics each time you're going to go through the Book of Mormon and look for the answers to those. For instance, one time I went through the Book of Mormon, I was looking for information on evolution, because I am just disgusted with what's happening with the teaching of evolution at mm -hmm. BYU and at a lot of these other schools. The evolution, if you go back and all, all the schools in the United States, by the way. I know. You go back yeah. and research the history of evolution, and it all began in an effort to prove that God did not create the world. So evolution is not something you want to do. But I was looking for evolution. I was looking for information about walls. This was when we had all the problems going down on the southern border about walls. I was looking for the entitlement Borders. mentality. Yes. Yeah. I was looking for the entitlement mentality, and then I was looking for a couple of other things as I went through. And I had a notebook, and I just put little tabs up there, and I would write down all the scriptures connected to those. It's amazing what's in the Book of Mormon. <laughs> so many lessons that you can learn in the Book of Mormon. Anyway, yeah, if, sorry, if, that was if, a little If off. you're a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and you read the Book of Mormon, you um, uh, then you know something about uh, the importance of walls. You do indeed. And another one of the issues that I was looking for in this particular reading, I was looking for in information on demographics because mm -hmm. several times, this happens over and over in the Book of Mormon, the Mormon will state that the, he'll give you a, a statement about the numbers of the Lamanites mm -hmm. and the Nephites. And over and over you, again, you hear that the Lamanites were more numerous than the Nephites. And I've asked myself the question, why is he telling us that? I'd like to know the reason why he's telling us that. I've identified at least three different places in the Book of Mormon where um, the statement is made that when the people were righteous, talking about the Nephites, when mm -hmm. the people were righteous, their numbers grew rapidly. I have not found, well, I've found one reference at the very end of the Book of it's Mormon. the blessings of, uh, does, of posterity. The, the numbers don't seem to be tied to the righteousness of the people, but most of the way through the Book of Mormon, you are tying righteousness to population growth, and that would be, of course, your basic principle. Mm -hmm. Anyway, that was a sidetrack. Yeah. Although the Lamanites were the unrighteous ones, and they seemed to be always out. Yeah, they always the were. So but I'm asking they, but myself they, why. But personally, I think they were getting re reinforcements from other people who were outside of the Book of Mormon peoples. But that's another story, and well, we've talked also, about that in previous podcasts. But also remember that we don't know too much about how many people actually stayed behind with the Lamanites when the mm -hmm. when the Lamanites and the Nephites splendid split into two different groups. We know a little bit about who went with Nephi. Mm -hmm. We know that Sam went, Jacob and Joseph went. We know yeah. that his sisters went. And so was that group substantially smaller? Was there a substantially larger group of people? Uh, we don't even know for just, sure. We don't know the, that. The total number of, of children that, that uh, Ishmael had, for example. That's true. Yeah. We don't and we don't even know all. Ishmael's wife's name. <laughs> I know. I wish we did. So, yeah, we did. And I'm sure that Sariah yeah. was delighted to have Ishmael's wife there. Yes. Don't you know those for, two women would yeah. have loved being together out there in the desert? Yep. Yep. All right. But here in, uh, in, so in verse uh, 14, it tells us what kinds of things that the Lamanites now had, so uh, so so they, they had pretty much uh, have um, uh, taken on them the ideas of warfare from the Nephites as far as their protective equipment. Uh, mm -hmm. So they but they but they said that they had from an offensive standpoint they said they had swords and scimitars and with bows and arrows. And as and far as defensive equipment, sheepskin. 
not this time. Not this time. Not this time. It says they had head plates and breast plates and all manner of shields. So not only did they have offensive weapons like bows and arrows and so forth, but they also now had head plates and breast plates and shields Smart to protect them. So they they they, they learned pretty quickly that uh, <laughs> that was an effective war strategy uh-huh. to 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 uh, arm themselves. The death rate would have gotten that across. Yes, yes, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so they were led by a man whose name was Coriantumr. He was a descendant of Zarahemla. If he was a descendant of Zarahemla, then he he's was a Nephite. A Nephite. He's a Nephite. That's so here's exactly this Nephite right. guy, and the king of the Lamanites, uh, King Tubaloth, he basically makes him. Why? Why would the king use an outsider to basically head up their armies? Well, if you notice, all it, it, that happens all the way through the Book of Mormon. It's the Nephites coming in that exercise the leadership to take the Lamanites back out. There must, there must have been something about the leadership evidenced through the Nephite way of life that gave those people yeah. authority when they went well, into those groups. Yeah. Well, also, th- I, I have to think of Coriantumr and think of you know, almost like, how would he justify killing off his own people? I don't. I mean, it's it's I this don't self-loathing know. thing. That I, I just, I mean, he, he had to just hate himself or hate, hate his posterity. Was, but Tubaloth was also I mean, his a ancestry. What's that? Tubaloth was also a Nephite. No, no, he was a, he was the son of the, of, 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 of Amaron. Right. He was the brother okay. of the oh, Malachi, okay. right? Okay. And they were yeah. Nephites. Okay, Were yeah. they not? Yeah, so my goodness. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you got some interesting well, things here. Well, one of the reasons why he was chosen, apparently, as far as a guy, is because he was a large and mighty man. Right. Um, if you have the annotated edition of the Book of Mormon on page uh, 344, I, I wanted to just address this a little bit because um, this is throughout the Book of Mormon. I don't think that they're just telling this because they want to say, you know, what what an awesome stud I am or kind of thing, you know, what, what a great, <laughs> yeah. great, uh, you, know, you know, big hunk of guy, you know, whatever. Um but I think that they're trying to tell us something here as well. It says, and this is again in Helaman chapter 1, uh, verse 15, it talks about to be, he being a large and mighty man. But throughout the Book of Mormon, you have Alma uh, chapter 1, verse 2, talked about a man who was large. And this guy happened to be uh, Nehor. Um, you have in Alma chapter 46, verse 3, he talked about uh, his brethren was a large and a strong man. Uh, Mormon chapter 2, verse 1, talked about them being large in stature. Well, Nephi okay. is described as being yes. large. Mormon, yeah, and exactly. And in Nephi, his own record, basically First Nephi chapter 2, he said he was large in stature. He said, being, I, mean, I, Nephi, being a man large in stature. Again, I don't think they're trying to say, you know, any kind of braggadocio way of of, uh, of just saying, you know, I, yeah, I'm, 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 a, I'm a big, strong guy. What would you think would be the reason for them... Uh, talking about their actual stature. And my personal feeling is basically this. Um, if, you, if, you, if anybody has been down to Central America basically and, and met with the people who, they, who are called the Mayan or the Maya, uh, are they large in stature? I mean, I most of the men won't make it to much more than about four and a half feet tall, maybe five feet oh, tall as a maximum. Really? Are you suggesting... Oh, no, go ahead. I'm, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, but uh, on the other hand, if you go to the Native Americans in North America, basically the They're Ojibwe, they are huge people. I mean, Very many of the men, most of the men will be well over six feet tall. Um, I've, I've met individuals from the Ojibwe that were seven feet tall, you know, six foot eight, six foot nine, six foot ten. Um, I'm Very pretty tall myself, I never but that's that. an interesting aspect of it because they talk about this being large in stature, and that also would have to do with warfare. You know, obviously, a bigger, more powerful person has mm-hmm. a, an advantage in warfare, especially when it's hand-to-hand combat. And then this brings us to an, an, another interesting thing on Zion's camp. 
uh, Joseph Smith, and we're going to have a, an actual. I, I have to bring Ryan Nelson in to talk about this because he's a he's a he's a self-made man. <laughs> but we're going to talk about. We'll have a, a whole thing about Zelf because I mean Ryan just got so much information about him, and and uh, we've been uh, giving Ryan all this information. He actually had a a, a, a painting commissioned of the warrior Zelf. Now, who is Zelf? And, and without going into too much detail, basically on Zion's camp. Joseph Smith and several of the brethren go up on a hill just out, just off of the Illinois River. They find a big, huge burial mound up there. They dig down with shovels, and they find this skeleton of a man. And Joseph Smith had a revelation about this guy. He said his name was Zelf. He was a warrior and a chieftain under a prophet by the name of Onondagas. And a white Lamanite. And he was a white Lamanite, but he said he was a large, thick-set man uh-huh. and a man of God. And he's a warrior under this prophet Onondagas, who was known from the Hill Cumorah, or Eastern Sea, to the Rocky Mountains. I know, I love that part. And uh, that tells us a lot about the. And he said yeah. he was killed in battle in, the, in the, one of the final battles between the Lamanites and the Nephites. This is clear back at the end of the Book of Mormon. Yeah. If that's the case, that puts the final battles, basically some of them happening, you know, the, the preceding battles to the final the final battle, basically, um, in Illinois. Yeah, yeah. And then they were pushed up into basically, uh, you know, Ohio area and then up into the Hill Camorra area. Hill Camorra, yeah. But, uh, but he was also a large, thick-set man, according to Joseph Smith and what he actually wrote. or he, Well, he, what he actually said and other people wrote about it. Uh, in the Jaredite record edited by, by, edited by Moroni, the brother of Jared is described as being a large and mighty man. It's Ether chapter 13, or chapter 1, verse 34. Later in the Jaredite history, Lib is described as a, quote, a man of great stature. So uh, interestingly enough, this is, these are a couple of quotes. This is, again, you can get this on page 344 in the Annotated Book of Mormon. But uh, George Catlin, he was an American painter, author, and traveler who specialized in portraits of Native Americans about 1832, about in the same time as uh, the Book of Mormon just was being released. He described the Crow tribe in this manner. Quote, they are really a handsome and well-formed set of men, as can be seen in any part of the world. Mm. There's a sort of ease and grace added to their dignity of manners, which give them the air of gentlemen at once. I observed the other day that most of them were over six feet high. He stated that the Sioux were all, quote, tall and straight, but, quote, none superior in stature, excepting the Osages, unquote. To his observations of the Northern Cheyenne, uh, there being, quote, scarcely a man in the tribe, full-grown, who is less than six feet in height. Amazing. Okay, that's from letter number four of George Catlin, Letters and Notes on the Manners, Customs, and Conditions of North American Indians. It's first published in London in 1844. New York was where that was published at. Similar observations were made in an 1819 and 1820 expedition by Major Stephen Long. He noted that the Indians of the Missouri region were, quote, in stature equal, if not somewhat superior, to the ordinary European standard, tall men are numerous, unquote. Hmm. So, uh, so the Mayan, I don't think, nothing against the Mayan people, I'm sure they're great people, but they, nobody would, would consider them in the world population as being large in stature. They hmm. are very diminutive in stature. But the North American Indians have that large in stature thing that we're talking about here. Okay, so, that, so they, they had this, um, he was a large and mighty man, this Coriantumr guy was. Uh, he stirred them up to anger, and then they marched down to Zarahemla. They went to, they, because of so much contention, this is, this is an important thing I think that we need to know for our day, coming up the next, next couple of years, I think. Uh, verse 18, it says, It came to pass that because of so much contention and so much difficulty in the government, 
they had not kept sufficient guards in the land of Zarahemla. Mm-hmm. That's because right. of all this insurrection and strife going on within the country, they weren't paying attention to the bigger enemy, which was the entire nation of the Lamanites. Well, so this concept is also so obvious through the Book of Mormon. When you are unrighteous, the, the law fails. Uh, we mentioned that a little bit earlier, but this is just another documentation of that. Mm-hmm. Um, when In a lot of the public speaking that I've done, I have a basic presentation that I do called Three Principles of Government. And the first of the three principles that I present is that freedom and morality are intertwined. And Mm -hmm. by morality, I'm not talking in the narrower sense of sexual morality. I'm talking in the broader sense of ethical morality. But you cannot have freedom without having ethical Well, didn't John John Adams basically said something to that effect? He said that the the Constitution is wholly inadequate for an unrighteous and immoral people. That's exactly right. So if you're not ethical and moral, you will never be able to achieve freedom. If you have freedom and you lose that, to, it, it, the two just go together. You, just, you can't separate the two. It, it, you won't be moral if you're not free. You won't be free if you're not moral. Yeah, and basically if somebody refuses to be moral... Um, then they're always going to be like like the like like a cow at the fence, <laughs> always going to be looking for a way out, looking for a loophole, and and, and then 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 they try to exploit those loopholes, and uh, and there is no perfect law as far as you know being able to have no loopholes. Basically, if the people will not uh, control themselves, then you have to get more and more minute detail as to what they can do. This is what happened exactly. to the Jews and the Pharisees and Sadducees. Well, you can only walk so many steps on the Sabbath day or else you're breaking the law. That's what they Because the people onto. wanted to have every little minute exactly. detail of their lives being controlled because they didn't want to actually you know, use their own ability to think and realize that, okay, this is right, this is wrong. Sometimes it's not 100% clear, like when your ox is in the mire uh-huh. on a Sabbath day. That's right. Okay. Um, you know, but but you still you have to use your your ability to to think and reason to figure out some of these things. And the more that people refuse to obey moral standards, then they have to be brought into alignment for the for the good of the culture by more and more restrictive laws. So if you want to evaluate what's happening with freedom in our country today, you look at the morality of the people, what's happening in terms of the moral structure in our nation, and you begin then to understand why the laws are beginning to fail us and why freedoms are beginning to fail us is because we have a a creeping uh, unethical and immoral behavior spreading through the people. Yeah, exactly. All right, so I I wanted to bring up this fact about the contention um, because – because there has been a lot of, uh, I mean, we don't even hear about what's going on in the world in our regular mainstream news anymore. <laughs> uh, it's all just about the riots and what's going on here in the United States. And, and we're totally focused on the lawlessness, the mayors and the, and the governors who will refuse to, to obey the law. That's been happening, though, with, with these states and cities basically declaring themselves sanctuary cities and sanctuary states. Mm-hmm. What are they saying? They're sanctuary, too. They refuse to follow the law. The and federal government law, they're just saying, we're not going to obey it. We're not going to enforce it. There's a, huge a dose, there's a huge dose of progressivism for you. That's massive, <laughs> and, yes. And it's never going to work. 
And, and now we have people advocating that we get rid of the police forces. Do you really think that's going to work, folks? I, I think it's kind of funny. The same, the same people who want to basically say that you don't have the right to defend yourself by owning a gun. That's right. And, but we're going to say, get rid but, of the but, police force. But, uh, yeah. yeah. So you, can't, you can't have a gun. And the reason why you don't need a gun because we have the police. But we're going to get rid of the police. The same people say we're going to get rid of the police, too. That's right. Which basically leads to our anarchy. It leads to uh, lawlessness. And so you, you ask yourself, you find yourself asking yourself, so what, the people who are believing all this, where, what are they thinking? Where are their brains going? How are their brains working? That they can believe that we have to take away guns to keep people safe, but then we're going to take away the people that are supposed to take keep care of them. Keep us safe in lieu I of mean, the guns. Where, where's the reasoning process going on here? And that's a real concern to me that it doesn't seem There's to There's a complete lack of being able to think yeah. clearly. Yeah. yeah. It's because like it's all emotional. It. Yeah. yeah. Oh, we don't like these police because what? Because a couple of guys are bad police. But and they we don't bad connect. Things. We aren't connecting. You know? it. Okay. If you do this, this is going to happen. And when that happens, this is going to happen. And this is what's going to happen to you at the end of that. People are not seeing that. Yeah. And I, I, I love the fact that uh, the, the people who are the most advocating of, of getting rid of the police uh, are people who, uh, have, like in Minnesota, <laughs> you know, in Minneapolis, they find out that they're spending forty five hundred dollars a day for personal protection. Security forces for the for the for those the, the the members of the city council, while they are in, in the process of abolishing the police department for everyone else. Oh my gosh! See, this, yeah. this is pure up, straight up socialism at its finest. You it's, have the it's... you have the you have the elite, and they have all the control and the and the and the and the wealth and the security and everybody else. It's all equal. They're equally miserable. Exactly. <laughs> okay. So, and, and we're laughing about yeah. it because we don't know what else to do. It's just, it's just crazy. Okay. Um, so, so, so in comes Barry, basically Coriantumr with the armies of the Lamanites. And this is a bold guy. I mean, he comes right straight for the capital city. Boom. He's in Zarahemla. They don't even have time to gather their forces because they're so distracted by all the other stuff that's going on. And so they, they come in, and before they know it, boom, they march forth with their whole army into the city. And there was no time for the Nephites to gather together. And they now they, they, they now took over the capital city. They take over the capital city, but interestingly enough, they kill all kinds of people. Yes. And we mentioned earlier that the Book of Mormon is uh, also a manual on how to conduct a war. And one of the lessons that you learn mm-hmm. is that a lot of innocent people die in a war. Yeah. Uh, a war is an ugly thing. We see war all the way through the Book of Mormon. We see war all the way through the history of the world yeah. everywhere. I've asked myself the question, what would you do? And in fact, I'm not the only one who's asked this because there have been some uh, entities such as the group at Iron Mountain who have had to consider that. If you answer the question, what would we have to do to get away from war and to eliminate war? Do you know what the answer to that is? Basically to submit. There are two answers. The first is to completely submit and take away all agency. Mm-hmm. Because the minute you give people a choice, you're going to end up someplace where there's warfare. And the other thing is that you have the people so righteous and so profound that they are living laws close to celestial and they can resolve those difficulties. And they don't even need fighting. rules and regulations because that's they're right. following God's law. So that's yeah. why we have a lot of war in our modern world and we're sorry mm-hmm. that we have that warfare. Uh, and the Book of Mormon certainly shows us that that's inevitable to defend yourself. So we have the end of Pehran's uh, third son that ran. So he had other sons, so this is not necessarily completely right. annihilating his entire posterity. Right. But the three right. that ran for office, 
they're now gone because Coriantumr basically finds him. He smites him up against the wall, and boom, he's gone. He's gone. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then, uh, so then, Coriantumr saw that he was a possession of the city of Zarahemla. Uh, I, I love. It. He says, "Obtained the possession of the strongest hold in all the land." His heart took courage. He was emboldened by this. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, "Yes, we did it." Oh wow! Does that sort of sound like a Chop Chaz, uh, the taking over of the city of Seattle, Washington, the capital yeah. city of the state of Washington? Not thinking, and they take through. it over. Yeah, <laughs> not then, thinking through what's going to happen. Okay, I'm going to go out there, and they're going to close it on my backside. Yeah. <laughs> so they Reasoning. so they are right for the center of the city, <laughs> and they and they and they took it over, and then you have the mayor of the, of, of Seattle basically going, "Oh, this is, sounds like it's going to be the summer of love." You know, whatever kind of thing. And it turned out to be the summer of killings. Uh, because they killed a bunch of people, and there's rapes and so forth going on. And, they, and and one of the first things that they did, these are the same people who say that the United States shouldn't have any borders, that we should just open it up for anybody, just come on in, whatever. Um, and they, and we should not have any armed forces, and we shouldn't uh, have any protection or whatever. The same people that, that have been promoting and espousing that, what the first thing they did when they set up Chop and Chaz? They put on walls. They put up barriers. They put, they put up, up walls. walls. And then they had armed guards walking around trying to keep people out, right? Some of the Wow, isn't it funny how the shoe doesn't fit? Sometimes sometimes <laughs> things just really don't make sense, do they? <laughs> yeah, but we got but yeah, you know, when you apply it to our, our what we're seeing happening in the United States of America, we actually can see how President Hinckley said that the Book of Mormon is as current as the daily news. Uh, exactly. But more inspired exactly. and inspiring. And so that's one of the reasons why we want to challenge people to read the Book of Mormon and right. we want to challenge them to read the Constitution of the United States so that they know what the law is supposed to be in the United States of yeah. America so they understand this desecration. The principle. Yeah, so, where in the Constitution does it give a governor of a state uh, the, the the right to shut down someone else's nowhere. property or business? Absolutely nowhere. There are people or to who force are people to wear a mask, right, as an example. There, to, there's to, no to force where that. that's in there. But remember, see, this is a progressive concept. The concept being, oh well, we have riots going on today. Therefore, we will have to change the law. We will have to abandon the Constitution of the United States because, oh, we have rioters going on right now. Guess what, folks? We've had rioters going on since mm-hmm. George Washington was the president. Rioting <laughs> is not new. You keep the law yeah. to protect the that's citizens. Right. That's right. Anyway. Okay, so so behold this this march of Coriantumr. They went right for the for the the heart of the Nephite lands, um, not realizing that Moroni Moronaiha, I should say. Uh, this is in verse 26. Behold, Moronaiha had supposed that the Lamanites wouldn't dare come into the center of their lands. <laughs> so, so, uh, so he didn't really, uh, you know, uh, fortify the center of their lands. Moroni had caused that their strong army should be maintaining those parts of the round, those parts roundabout by the borders of their lands. So that's where the strength of the Nephite armies were. So when these guys, when Coriantum and his army went up right up in the middle of it all, they found themselves pretty quickly surrounded. And, yeah. uh, and, 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 of course, we know what happens to him. Basically, they are, were surrounded on every hand by the Nephites. They could not retreat either, to the, either way to the north or south, the east or the west. And thus, had the Coriantumr plunged the Nephites, the Lamites, into the midst of the Nephites, insomuch that they were in the power of the Nephites. And he himself was slain, one down. One down. Done. Leadership change. Um, and the Lamites did yield themselves into the hands of the Nephites. It came to pass that Moronihah took possession of the city of Zarahemla again, because the Lamanites who were taken prisoners should depart out of the land in peace. And I love that part. They just let him go. I love that part. Okay, so they didn't put him in prison. They didn't kill him. But we. But what we don't know, 
that we have to assume happened is that he must have extracted a promise from them. Yeah. Because if he had taken them in battle and then had not extracted a promise from them, yeah. we would be left to ourselves saying what Moronaiha did wasn't smart. He was a very smart man, mm-hmm. a very smart man. So we have to assume that he extracted some kind of a promise. Well, and we and we have precedence for that because in previous and in, in wars, even after yeah. this, um, when they when they basically have uh, prisoners, they basically either they they swore with an oath that they wouldn't come back. And remember Sarah Hemna, yeah, <laughs> okay? and, uh, and and he refused to do it. And he said, okay, then then, the then, then we're gonna we're gonna. Yeah, we're going to finish this right now. Yeah, and yeah, and some of them, they gave them land, and, and the Lamanites went to live among the children of Amma, the people of, yeah. the, excuse me, the people of Ammon. Yeah, and the so, land of Nephi area, yeah. Yeah, we saw that happening, and that's and it's beautiful. And I, I love that phrase every time I come to that in the Book of Mormon, because it tells me of a compassionate form of leadership. Yeah, exactly. So they let him go. All right, uh, let's see here. And now, that, so now we're going to go over to uh, to uh, chapter uh, two here of Helaman. And you are going to get to Gadiant and Robbers. Now we're going to start to get to this uh, going on here. So now we get down to the point where verse three, and behold, Kishkuman, and he was the guy that killed Peharon on his judgment seat, ran right. off, and then they, and then everybody had to make an oath not to tell right. on him, not to not to rat him out, basically. Uh, so he did uh, who murdered. He laid. He uh, did lay wait to destroy Helaman, because Helaman now is now the judgment in the judgment seat. Okay, so um, so Helaman's there, um, and and it, and, it, and there was one one Gadianton who was exceedingly expert in many words and also in his craft. What do you think his craft was? Uh, sneakery. <laughs> Just off the tip of my tongue. <laughs> I think I think his craft was probably warfare. <laughs> I think so. Probably. I think he probably was quite a uh, quite a warrior. Uh, to carry out the, the secret work of murder and of robbery. Therefore, he became the leader of this band, Kishkuman. Yes. So Kishkuman was really the, uh, the he, he was the puppet master. He formulated it. And then Gadianton was the puppet. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, therefore, he did flatter them and also Kishkuman. If he would place him in the judgment seat, uh, he would grant unto those who belong to his band that they should be placed in power and authority among the people. Now, wow, isn't that an interesting concept? Well, of course, what else? How else would you get all these people to go along with you at, at, without promising them power? Something, yeah. So that's what they were promised. And of course, when the power comes, the money and the control always come with it. That's right. That's right. And that's and that's one of the interesting aspects of this whole thing. I wanted to talk about that for just a little bit about the the power. Um, because um, you know, originally the founding fathers were doing this uh, not to basically uh, feather their own nests. They wanted to have a nation that would survive, um, directed by God. Basically, most of them did this, you know, um, pretty selflessly. I think the general motivation so, was yeah. is to have their posterity and 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 you know, preceding or you know, you know later posterity. Um, be able to live in a land of freedom. Well, they also wanted to strengthen their own individual states. Yeah. So the thing that's really interesting is that while they were working to, stre- to strengthen their own individual states, they worked to create a unity where all those states could remain under one leadership and where they would strengthen each other. Yeah. So that, that was a profound So they could act. protect themselves against the other, the other military powers of the world at yes. the time, which is you know, and, France but they, and But they also built Britain principles so into the Constitution that allowed them to be protected from each other in case the states started to get out of hand. But they did. It's marvelous what they did with the division of power. So they gave the the power to create law to the legislature, the power to enforce the law to the president, mm-hmm. and the power to validate the law 
by, to the, by to the, the judiciary. Court yeah. And so, it, because they were working along this exact same principle, power is mm -hmm. so in, is so overwhelming. It's so oppressive what you can do with power that the only way you can control that power and prevent the, those with malintent to manipulate it is to cut it up in pieces and pass the pieces around. Well, basically, to take did. to take the power out of the hands of a few individuals. That's right. And spread it out among the people. Yes, and and in the yeah. legislature, they not only give uh, because it's divided into two parts. They give one part of the power to the people. Uh, and then they themselves. give the other part of yes to themselves, and then they give the other based on part the population the to the states, yeah. and we destroyed that with the Seventeenth Amendment, and that's one of the great travesties for what's been done to our Constitution. But originally, the way it had it set up, you have the people having power, and you have the states having power. Neither one of them could act without the other, and therefore you had a beautiful. There's a check in the balance, and where in it had two. to stay yeah. under control. But we and, that, and, that, and that's the difference between the part of the difference between the democracy. Seen a republic, right? Exactly, there. exactly. Yeah. That's part of a republic. Yeah. So, so, um, so this power thing, though, I want to, I want to just uh, talk about that for just a couple of seconds here, folks, because um, one of the interesting things is, is that there's not a lot of power in a, in, in, in a, in an entity that has no money. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. But and what uh, did you do? And, and, and so, um, I, I think that God knew that because of this whole governmental system, this was going to produce wealth on a scale that had never before seen in the history of the world. I mean, there's been, you know, even the, the, the French and so forth, I mean, you've been over into France and England and so forth, and you see these big castles and so forth, but the wealth that those people had was concentrated into just a very small few hands. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, and then they basically controlled everything and controlled everybody. There was no middle class in the old world. Basically, you had the upper class and you had the lower class, and basically, if you were a lower class, you were born in that way, and you, and you didn't get out of it. No, that's if right. If you were born into the hierarchy class, then that's how you were. That's right. The United States was the first time you have a nation of people where the vast majority of the people were what they call a middle class. So you didn't have the very you had some very, very poor and you had some, you know, fairly rich, but the bottom line, the most of the people were actually at a economic scale way above anyone else in the world. I mean, any third world country you know, I mean, it's kind of funny. I had a lady, lady one time that said, you know, it's interesting about your country. From my country where I come from, which was Africa, uh, she said, you know, the, the poor people are very skinny. Uh -huh. In America, the poor people are quite overweight, many of them. I mean, the majority of them, actually. And they're going, that, that, that doesn't happen in our country. <laughs> you know, yeah, because you don't have money, you don't have food, and you yeah. basically are starving. Uh, but but your people can basically they're, they're still doing fine. Well, the reason the the, as far as, the reason the middle class can do so well in America is because we have a system of government that rewards individuals for their own individual efforts, yes. and that's available to all people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So so, but 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 back to the this power thing. Mm -hmm. So when you have a lot of money. And, and you have once you once you have you know the basic essentials essentials you know you have food clothing and shelter and so forth and you have that all covered and you're good then you can start um, doing other things with it. Well, some of the things you can do with it is bless the lives of other people. Another thing you can do is use that money to gain more and more power. Mm -hmm, to overwhelm. And what we've had is we've had industrialists and so forth you know like you know Carnegies and others and and, and Rothschilds and so forth that basically begin to use um, that power. 
to try to that money to, to try to get more and more power so they can have more and more money. But how much money can you possibly need? It's the power that goes along with the money. Because the more money the you get, prestige. the more power That's you right. have. That's and right. so we've had some really oppressive things happening from these. And we now have a new form of, uh, of tyranny going on, uh, oppression of the people going on in the United States of America, and it's called corporatism, and it's coming from business entities who gain so much power that yeah. they begin to manipulate the market, they manipulate the jobs, the economy, the whole thing. Well, this is what a lot of the socialists, or you know, democratic yeah. socialists, basically are arguing, is that, that you know, these capitalists are just are just raping the world with uh, you know with taking their money and just taking all the natural resources and they're not they're not giving it down to the lower people they're just keeping it all for themselves and they're getting more and more power and that's a legitimate beef it if is. if the capitalists are wicked people they can use that power of the money to suppress the rest of the population however that's why it's important that they be moral people yes moral people when they get a lot of money what do moral people do with their money well, they they do try things, to bless the rest of the world. They do things to help other people, but also right. understand that if the government had maintained the, le- the, the laws as they should have, as they were stated in the original Constitution, you wouldn't have so much power going to these corporations because you wouldn't be giving them tax breaks and special favors, mm-hmm. and you wouldn't have them grouping together in cabals in order to bring about what they want and influence legislatures. So it's also a part of failure yeah, of the no law. Yeah, no doubt. No, no question about it. Yeah. And there are some aspects of the law, and this is, I think, where the progressive argument is as well. Say, well, you know, back in the day of the Constitution, there was no internet. There was no Facebook. There was no Twitter. <laughs> you know? And that's one of the reasons we operated with so much liberty, because we didn't have those instances <laughs> yeah. training in on us. Yeah, but now those, pow- <laughs> those powers are being born, are being used and, and actually abused mm-hmm. to shut down certain, certain ideologies, uh, specifically conservatism, and, and to promote basically progressivism yeah and promote promote humanist much. causes and to and to downplay anything that had to do with prophets or or the church or the gospel or or righteousness or religion in general oh, so isn't that our modern form of gadiantism that's stepping in and taking over the form Absolutely. of the government and controlling the will and the nature of the people because among the gadiantans you had Nephites, we, we see that in the book of Helaman, the Nephites begin, ste- and, and in third Nephite, the Nephites begin stepping in and joining the Gadians, and that's one of the reasons they became so powerful. Yeah. They upheld them. Yeah. They wanted to, spend, they, they wanted to participate in their spoils. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yes. All right. Well, we got to move. Keep moving forward here. So uh, basically, you have this. Uh, then you have the servant of the servant of Helaman, uh, basically uh, um, gets finally takes down uh, Kishkumen. Okay, but you got something interesting going on there. Mm-hmm. We have the first spy ring that we see. Yeah. In the Book of Mormon. Yeah. And the spies were were very prevalent in helping George Washington beat the British here in the Americas. For instance, we have the Culper Ring that operated uh, around the city of New York and Long Island uh, that actually helped George Washington retake the yeah. retake Long Island. Good reconnaissance. Yeah, it was. So <laughs> I love that we get into spies a lot when we get into the Old Testament, but yeah. it's interesting to see that operating here in the Book of Mormon. So so paying attention to what the enemy is doing is not a bad thing. It it is, in fact, a critical thing. The scriptures yeah. tell us that we must. Otherwise, know you won't. Otherwise, it yeah. will catch you as a thief in the night. That's why That's we're right. kind of doing these podcasts because exactly. we're trying to give you 
that uh, that that in, that recon, that intelligence, basically that right. this is happening over here, and you may not know about it, but you need to know about it because it may come to your town next. And so, <laughs> when I talk to people who tell me, "Oh, I don't want to watch the news because there's distressing distressing uh, information being presented there," I I think to myself, yeah. "But you need to know what's going on. You don't have to immerse yourself in it. Yeah. You don't have to sink into depression, but you do need to know what's going on." Yeah. Yeah, and so we have uh, basically so Kish Kuman, he's uh, he got he stabbed Kish Kuman in the heart and he fell dead without a groan. Uh, he then sent forth to take this band of robbers and and, and uh, that they might be executed according to the law. But Gadianton found out about this. He realized when Kish Kuman didn't return back right away, he's like, you know what? I think there's a problem going on here. So he took his band and they took their flight and they left the land. And wouldn't they, it be they, they hit the road. Wouldn't it be interesting if he hadn't gotten away fast enough and had captured him? I wonder what it would have done to the final history of the Book of Mormon. Yeah, I don't know. I don't either. Uh, but I guess we'll never know because it no, didn't happen there. Didn't but anyway, happen. so then Mormon comments on this. So now, so now Mormon breaks from the narrative. Or I mean, I mean breaks breaks from the story and actually creates this narrative here, and uh, and and he and he and he tells us something about the the ending of the book. And he says here in verse 12, he says, And more on this Gadianton shall be spoken hereafter. And thus ended the forty and second year of the reign of the judges over the people of Nephi. And behold, in the end of this book, you will see that this Gadianton did prove the overthrow, yea, almost the entire destruction of the people of Nephi. Behold, I, Mormon, do not mean the end of the book of Helaman, but I mean the end of the book of Nephi. Okay, so not, so, not just this book of Helaman that he's been working on, but the entire book of Mormon. Well, so that's a fascinating insight into the record keeping itself, because we know that there had to have been a book called Nephi that contained the entire history. All these tangential records coming in to yeah. play like this, but one continuous. I love that. One of these times I read the book of Mormon, I'm going to focus just on the records. Yeah. See yep. what happened. Yep. Okay, so then in chapter 3, you have uh, there's no contention in the land. Then he jumps through basically the 43rd, 44th, 45th, 46th years. He kind of just blasts through all those really quickly. And then he says, and it came to pass in the 46th year, there's much contention in the land and dissensions. Um, people were leaving the land of Zarahemla because it was getting so bad. Um, I was actually on a hike uh, not too long ago up, up here in, in, in uh, American Fort Canyon, and there was a couple that was coming up the trail and we stopped, and we were kind of chatting for a second, and they were from uh, Maryland. And they, I said, well, what are you guys doing out here? I said, well, we're just on vacation, but we're looking for another place to live. Hmm. We don't want to live next to D.C. anymore. Isn't D.C. That is getting too dangerous, and we want to yeah. be out of there. We lived in, near the Washington, D.C. area. Yeah. I can understand that. Yeah, so uh, so it's interesting. So they started having this exodus out of their Hemla area uh, because it's, un it's, it's unsecure. Yeah. Nobody wanted to live there anymore. They had traveled to an exceedingly great distance, insomuch that they came to, and get this, large bodies of water and many rivers. Um, so they went to exceedingly distance. Which, which direction did it say? They traveled to an exceedingly great distance. They went to the land northward. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So um, if you go from Zarahemla, which is basically if, 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 if the Lord got it, if, if we're understanding the Lord properly and he got it right, okay, which is Which across the river from Nauvoo, <laughs> right. okay? It's basically an Illinois area, right? Um, then, um, then you go north of there, and, and you find basically Lake Michigan, Great Lakes, yeah. up there. Yeah. And if you go into that northward area up there, all the Great Lakes are up there. I think the Great Lakes would qualify pretty well as called large bodies of water. I would agree with you. And uh, so I think this is one of the examples of, uh, from a geography standpoint, it makes perfect sense. So they go north from that area, you're going to run into large bodies of water. In fact, you can't really miss it. If you go far enough north, you'll end up in Lake, Lake Superior even. Okay. Um, 
Yea, and they did spread forth in lands of the lands. Let's see, verse uh, five. Uh, they had not rendered desolate. Oh, okay, this is an interesting aspect as well. They did spread forth into all the parts of the land that into whatsoever parts it had not been rendered desolate and without timber because of the many inhabitants who had before inherited the land. Mm-hmm. So now, now we have a definition of the land of desolation. It's a land without wood. Yeah, without trees. Okay. But specifically, it says, but, and, and it says, and, no, and now no part of the land was desolate, save it were for timber. Mm-hmm. So the only thing that was desolate about this land, it wasn't like a desert waste place. It just had lack of timber. Right. And why? Because the inhabitants of the land had used it all. Because of the greatness of destruction of the people who had inhabited the land. Okay, so. And so they built houses of cement. Yes. Okay. Uh, love Which the is awesome. of the people. Yes. <laughs> uh, there, there being that, verse 7 uh, says, And there being little timber upon the face of the land, nevertheless the people who went forth became exceedingly expert in the working of cement, just like you just said. But I want to address a couple of things. If the Book of Mormon happened in Central America and presumably a tropical rainforest... Wouldn't you find cement there? Well, I'm thinking, wouldn't you find trees there? I mean, how are you going to cut down all of the trees in an entire tropical rainforest? And regrow the land and it doesn't grow with trees. And, and, and the trees, there's no, there's no trees. But there but there's, would be cement. It's basically, cement is basically just limestone that is, that is fired into a, in, in, in a kiln, basically. You can put it in, 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 in an oven of some sort. And it calls and, it, and it's called slaking been. process, and then yeah. basically you, that will break down into a powder, basically, and then you use that, and mix it with water and rocks, okay. and that's how you get cement. Okay, but uh, the tree part you can't camouflage that part. Yeah, and the thing is, is that, that in a tropical rainforest, those a tropical rainforest will replenish itself within. 15 or 20 years. And it won't grow the kind of trees that you planted there because you want them to go there. It will grow the yeah. kind of trees that are native and indigenous. Yes. To and, and, and most of the trees in North America, on the other hand, are hardwood trees. Yeah. And they'll take 60, 70, 80 years to get to a full mature tree. You know, we get you know, a good sized, a big yeah. tree, big enough to use as far as like uh, for, for uh, vertical members of a, uh, of a, of a border wall yeah. Yeah. or something like that. Yeah. Uh, they did bid, so they had workies of cement. Now people said, "Well, well, there you go, right there, the heartland of America is out of the picture because uh, where's all the cement houses? Where are they all?" Well, that would those would deteriorate <laughs> over thousand years. That, no, no, notice though, folks, they didn't say stone houses. They no, said cement. houses of cement. <laughs> cement, my house. Here in Provo, Utah, at some point in time, I'm going to have to replace the cement that was originally put in my house about uh, 35, 40 years ago because the cement's completely breaking up in what they call spalling. It's cracking and falling uh-huh. apart. The surface is coming apart. And that's because of freezing and thawing cycles. Mm-hmm. So any cement that happened back in the Book of Mormon days, is if, going to if be my gone. concrete's falling apart in 30, 40, 50 years, and they have to replace uh, concrete overpasses and so forth every about 40 or 50 years because the cement will not last longer than you know, that amount of time. Well, Over the course only, of a thousand years, how long is that? How much cement is there going to be remaining and, there? But not only that, it cracks. Exactly. So, so. It, it basically it gets, it's, it's porous. The water gets into the cement. As the water freezes, it expands. It basically breaks the cement out. So there isn't going to be any cement left over after thousands of years. Yeah. Um, of, a, of, a, of a city made out of cement. Now, that's not the case, though, then in Central America, where it never freezes. The cement will last almost forever down there because it doesn't 
expand the water doesn't expand and contract and break the cement up huh? so it will so it's very very uh you know good there now notice that they never said that they said they did build houses of cement in which they did dwell um, we actually have uh, several cases of what they call Hopewell cement in the archaeological record, where they actually had a layer of cement over the top of some of the mounds, like Site Mound in oh, Ohio. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I remember um, that. So if it's, if it's buried, if the cement is buried down below the frost line, then it would actually survive. But most of the houses were not going to be built under the frost line. They're going to be built on the surface of the earth. So they're not going to last. So nobody would expect to find huge, you know, these massive cities with all this, you know, concrete walls. And if I can just state, we've been on two tours with Rod Meldrum. Well, two uh, two of your tours, yes, one of the tours yes, with you. Yeah, it was delightful. Yeah. <laughs> I would encourage any of you to take those tours. Awesome. Uh, you, it will wipe away any traces of doubt you may have in your mind about it, where the Nephites actually lived. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it really is fascinating. Now, a couple other geography things here, and then we're going to move on to some, uh, some more things about the records of the Nephites here. But in verse 8, it says, It came to pass that they did multiply and spread. This is verse 8 of chapter 3. And did go forth from the land southward to the land northward and spread in so much that began to cover the face of the whole earth. And get this. From the sea south to the sea north, from the sea west to the sea east. Mm-hmm. So there was these four seas in cardinal directions, literally surrounding, you know, all around this, this land here. And the people who were in the land northward did dwell in tents and in houses of cement. Okay, so this is because of the lack of trees. Mm-hmm. Okay, and, and because of the lack of trees, they said they did suffer whatsoever tree should should spring up upon the face of the land. So, you know, they, apparently they didn't have big nurseries where you could just go down and, you know, buy some trees. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but any tree that happened to just come up on the, on the face of the land, that it should grow up, that in time they might have timber to build what? Houses. Their houses. Temples. And their cities and their temples. Cities. And their synagogues and their sanctuaries Mm -hmm. and all manner of their buildings. Mm -hmm. So what was their preferred building material? Wood. It was wood. And they only used wood, they only used cement when they didn't have enough wood. So that tells you right there that most of their buildings would have been built out of wood if they could find it. Exactly. Okay. And including their temples. Now that is a really important one. Okay. Um, In fact, um, I'm going to, I'm going to, Pull up a uh, some information here, but uh, if you if you'd like to um, let's see, it came to pass that there was timber was exceedingly scarce in the land northward. They did send forth much by way of shipping, which tells you that they had shipping. If you have shipping, what does shipping require? You have ships. Ships. Yeah, but you've and got you have to have, to have navigable waterways. But, but you've got to have a whole commercial enterprise that goes with that. You've, you're seeing a very enterprising kind of people who are able to work to bring about their own means and their own goods, and that's mm-hmm. very, very indicative of what we do right here in the United States of America today. Yep. So, yes, you have to have the ships, and you have to have uh, people climbing on board those ships, and they have to have destinations that they're going to, and you've got foodstuffs that can be taken on there, and you have whole families going. It would have been, a, it would have been an exciting time. This was probably a very interesting time in the Book of Mormon, uh, a lot going on. I can imagine the capital city of Zarahemla was a fascinating place to be at that point in time. Yeah, absolutely. 
Okay, I, I want to go to uh, a few uh, slides here for just a second. Um, those of you who have seen the, the uh, my first uh, DVD set or the, the first DVD which I ever did, which is called DNA Evidence for Book of Mormon Geography. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've seen I actually those. addressed this uh, to some extent about tents, temples, and teepees. I just wanted to uh, share with you, and you can stop the you can stop the video here if you want to read each one of these. But these are basically just uh, how the people used tents all the way from 600 BC, where they took nothing with them except his family and his provisions and his tents, all the way to 385 AD, surrounding the hill Cumorah, where he says, "We did march forth to the land of Cumorah. We did pitch our tents round about the hill Cumorah." And of course, we know about how they pitched their tents with every man with his tent facing the temple and so right. forth, with the King Benjamin's speech and so forth. And even the Jaredites were all about tents. So tents was an important part of it. In the, um, in the uh, Native American tradition, um, these tents are called something else. Teepees, yeah. Teepees, yeah. Portable houses. Uh-huh. That's exactly what a teepee is. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and of course, they had that uh, going on there. Uh, I want to point out uh, here... Um, the, uh, the about that they had their their tents and their and, and so forth. These are just from uh, some additional examples about their tents here. Uh, okay, and then uh, tents have been in continuous use for millennia. In fact, the first the first temple of uh, back in the day was actually a tent called the tabernacle. Of course, and it was a tent, right? Uh, Israelite tabernacles and Solomon's temple had outer barrier for screening of ordinances from public view. This is another idea of the Israelite temple here. Um, and then it says, and th- this is from uh, some Second Nephi chapter five, that he built a temple and he constructed after the manner of the Temple of Solomon. The Temple of Solomon was made out of stone, right? Because stone was readily available there. But in the Mississippi River Valley, where all this was occurring here, uh, there isn't there isn't a lot of stone. It's about three thousand feet of sediments under <laughs> the Mississippi River Valley, and uh, so they didn't have a lot of stone to work with. So what would they use in, in, in instead of that? He said that they couldn't do it after the manner of Solomon's temple because they, some of the things that they, they were, the Solomon's temple was made out of weren't, weren't available. Okay, now and, and now this is a, a stone structure. This is Chichen Itza down in Central America. Uh, that is a stone temple. But here in Helaman, he specifically said that the temples were made out of what? Wood. Wood. Why would we even look at this as a possibility of a temple of the Nephites when, uh, when this, the, 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 in fact... Brothers and sisters, there's not even a single solitary um, mention anywhere in the Book of Mormon of any buildings made out of stone. They talk about cement, oh, nowhere but in the c- Book of cement, they had stone walls. That's all they talk about. Not mm-hmm. once did they ever mention any buildings. In fact, King Noah's palace, in fact, I think I can talk about that here in just a second. Um, let me go back to this for a second. So... Uh, the purposes of the Mayan temples basically talks about the ball court for entertainment and also for ceremonies of their of their people. This is the ball court here, and uh, and astronomical observatories. This is a Mayan courtyard scene of sacrifice. This is uh, somebody being sacrificed on an altar. That was one of their major fun things that they love to do mm. is to sacrifice virgins, and, and so mm. many times they would skin them alive as much as they could, and then wear their skins around on the top. I mean, it was. It was it was a crazy time to be there, be alive back then. These are, oh. again, sacrificial scenes. These, these are come from uh, uh, rollouts of vases or vases of, uh, that have been painted with these scenes on them. Anyway, so uh, we don't have time to get into the details here, but human sacrifice was a big deal. Uh, there's the cenotes and so forth. Um, uh, again, we don't have time to go into details. If you want to see all of this, this is basically in the in the DVD set, the Book of Mormon Evidence Number One, mm-hmm. and also in the D- DVD uh, called DNA Evidence for Book of Mormon Geography. Which, by the way, we don't have those anymore. 
Uh, we discontinued those, and that's now the the uh, the main DVD that we ask people to share with other people is the American Promised Land Covenant DVD. So that's this one right here. All right, so let me see here. Uh, talked about other sheep. We're going to get into this in the third Nephi stuff, so we're not going to go there, but I'm just going to point out really quickly here. This is a scene of what they may have been like back in um, the uh, the area around uh, the... Um, in the heartland of America, they had uh, basically wooden structures primarily. You can see the wooden structures there. Um, They used wood as their primary um, material. And uh, again, we can go into some of the details there later on. So their defenses basically had to do with the the palisades of timbers and defenses and and, uh, using wood for all of that. Uh, Again, just kind of going through some very quick things here. Um, and that's that. That's it for that. There's just too much information to go into all that. So that that'll be it for that. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, now a, a couple of other quick things here in uh, third in, in chapter three it says many records were kept by the Nephites, and he tells us that these records were kept. But he says a hundredth part. He says cannot be contained in this work, and he tells us some of the things that are not in the Book of Mormon. Some of the things that he had to leave out. He says, for example, the account of the Lamanites. Okay, he said, uh, and of the Nephites, their wars, contentions, their preaching and prophecies and shipping, they had to leave all that out. The building of ships, they've left that all out. Mormon had to Mormon had to make the decision to leave these things out. The building of temples, he left that out. The synagogues and sanctuaries and righteousness, their wickedness, their murders and robberies and plunderings and so forth, their abominations and their whoredoms, he left all of that out. And all the secret combi- the information for the secret combinations was left out. Yeah. He only wanted us to see the results of that, the tragedies that came. That's right. So he d- he had to make a choice as to what stuff he was going to include. And there are a lot of things about the wars and contentions, but th- it, it tells you that that the, the, what we are getting from the Book of Mormon, as far as the wars and contentions, was just a minute part of what was really going on. So we see microcosms scattered throughout yeah. their history, but the Lord would certainly have been guiding what, my, what Moroni and Mormon put into the Book of Mormon, and so we have the composite history of yeah. what we need. Okay, so in verse in verse eighteen, uh, Helaman the, the the second becomes the judge basically over the people here. Helaman did fill the judgment seat with justice and equity. Um, then uh, he had uh, he had uh, two sons, the Nephi, uh, and, and, and unto the youngest the name of Lehi. So there's Nephi and Lehi again now showing up, <laughs> you know, in this particular case. Uh, contentions begin to cease. Uh, but then there was continual peace in the land. This is verse uh, 23. This is um, the 49th year, the reign of the judges. Continual peace established in the land, all save it was these secret combinations which Gadianton, the robber, had established in the more settled parts of the land. Yeah. So now they weren't just outliers. They were actually now among the people. They were infiltrating. Yeah. They were still. They were, they were right there in and among the people, <clears throat> uh, which at that time were not known unto those who were at the head of government or they would have destroyed them. Okay. So there was exceedingly great prosperity, and many thousands joined themselves to the church. This is a period of really great uh, material um, here. Um, I wanted to go into the Nephite building materials for just a second here, because um, on page uh, 349 in the Annotated Book of Mormon, it talks about these Nephite building materials, and specifically how timber. But uh, uh, this this is from Hugh Nibley. I just want to read this really quickly, because this is so powerful. Hugh Nibley is, again, one of the, the quintessential scholars in the church. And he said, quote, the Nephites vastly preferred wood to any other building material and, the only, and, and only worked in cement when they were forced to by shortage of timber. 
Indeed, they refused to settle otherwise good lands in the north if timber for building was lacking. That's from Helaman chapter 3, verse 5. Where they reluctantly settled in unforested areas, they continued to, quote, dwell in tents and in houses of cement, unquote, while they patiently waited for the trees to grow. Since cement must be made of limestone, there was no lack of stone for building in the north. Why then did they not simply build of stone and forget about the cement and wood? Because surprising as it may seem, ancient people almost never built of stone. Even when the magnificent King Noah built his many elegant and spacious buildings, their splendor was that of carved wood and precious metal, like in the palace of any great lord of Europe or Asia, with no mention of stone. The Book of Mormon boom cities went up rapidly while the builders were living in tents, and these were not stone cities. Nephite society was even more dependent on forests than our own. I love that, uh, that thoughtful comment here by Hugh Nibley in An Approach to the Book of Mormon. Just a second ago, I was, I was talking about these Nephite structures, these building structures. I did have a couple of uh, images that I wanted to share uh, with some folks here as well. Uh, so this is talking about Nephite structures. Again, this is from our, my DVD set there. Um, but this is what it, it talks about in the Book of Mosiah, that King Noah's palace was made of fine wood. The Nephite defense systems, basically in Alma chapter 50, talks about timbers being built up to the height of a man, towers erected, and uh, these are all around the cities of every land. This is this is what they might have looked like. This is actually from Cahokia. Uh, each oh, one of these each one of these uh, these um, logs have been placed in an actual location where the original ones were located based on archaeology. Hmm. So this kind of gives you an idea of what they may have looked like with the with these uh, um, towers there. Uh, this has been rebuilt. Uh, they, they actually put cement over the top of it. The reason why is because, archaeologically speaking, they found the evidence for cement on the inside and outside of the walls. As they decayed or burned down, the cement was hmm. left behind. And so they have a big pile of cement, basically, on the inside and outside of each, each ah, of the walls. This is how they know that they actually had cement over the top of these walls. Um, this is this is a depiction from the uh, from the museums out there of what it may have looked like with the defensive walls, with the towers and so forth, and the wooden uh, the wooden buildings. Uh, the wood basically would have had a stucco over them, which also stucco could be considered to be cement. So uh, this is this is actually a Hopewell dwelling right here. This is in Fort Ancient Ohio at the Fort Ancient uh, um, ar- archaeological site there. And uh, they actually made a recreation of what they believe that the Hopewell homes would have looked like. This is a Hopewell dwelling structure. It was made primarily of wood with a daub and wattle construction, which is using essentially a cement on the outside of it to basically make it more um, airtight or waterproof. And uh, so we know that that's actually how they actually built their homes. You realize they might have had barn raisings that just like they didn't. Yeah, everybody gets the together. The whole community gets together. West. <laughs> probably, if they were Jews, they would probably do this at the time of bequothal. Uh-huh. Yeah. So when, they, when, when a couple would decide to get married, their family would all get together and they'd help to build a house for the couple to live in while they uh, went through the, the rituals of the, of the, of the um, laws of Moses. Right. So this stockweed wall just right in this general area here, if you can read that, it basically says uh, um, right here, it says they use between 15,000 to 20,000 posts. Now, most oak trees don't grow straight up and down. They have all kinds of things going out. So to find 20,000 straight up and down posts... You have a lot of trees. You have to cut down a lot of trees. That's right. Uh, the primary building material of the Book of Mormon. Uh, again, this is Healman talking about the timber to build all those things. And, uh, and we know that this is actually what happened. So uh, this is about uh, the Holocene. This is talking about the, uh, the plants and so forth that shows that they, the middle woodland people... 
we're actually uh, deforesting their lands. We know that that's the case from an archaeological standpoint. So that means that they were cutting down all the trees in the area. And also this makes no sense. If the cities of the Nephites were built out of wood, what would be the easiest way to destroy those cities? Burn them. Burn them. Is there any any accounts of the cities being burned in the Book of Mormon? <laughs> Indeed, yeah. Well, heck yeah. Here in Mormon, they destroyed the Lamanites and their towns and their cities and their villages were burned with fire. Or here in Ether, in the, the Jaredites, they burned them with fire, right? They did burn the cities. Um, they did talk about walls of stone in Alma chapter 48, but that's the only time that walls that stone is mentioned as a building material. It's walls of stone, and of course we have walls of stone here. Okay, so we're going to go out of that. Um, and now, uh, so we get down to the point back to uh, Helaman chapter um, 3. So then it goes, you have three, three years in succession, uh, 49, 50, and 51, years after the reign of the judges. And it says, the hearts of the people who profess to belong to the church of God began to be prideful. Mm-hmm. The cycle repeats itself again. We see that over oh, and word. over and over. Yep. All right. And so then Helaman the second. now he dies, and now we go into Helaman chapter 4. And Helaman chapter 4, uh, verse 7, I wanted to comment on this. There's a bunch of years in succession again, uh, year 54, 56, 57, 58. And in verse 7 it says, and, they were, and, and there they did fortify against the Lamanites from the sea west, even unto the sea east, it being a day's journey for a Nephite on the line which they had fortified and stationed their armies to defend their north country. Now, interestingly enough, this has been the one that this is kind of the narrow neck of land scripture that everybody kind of refers to, right? It said it was from the sea west even to the east. Now, interestingly enough, they specifically mention a sea west, but they don't say that the, that the body of water, there was a body of water on the east. It just says from the sea west even into the east. We just assume it's another sea. But it may not have been a sea at all. It could have been just any other uh, impediment to their travel on the east side. So there's no indication here that this was between two seas. Mm, very interesting. It's a, that's a, that's, a, that's a, an assumption that we make based on how it was written here. But it was only a day's journey for a Nephite on, the, on this line that they fortified. Um, we've already talked about that in previous uh, um, podcasts with Ryan Nelson. So if you want to see information about the narrow neck of land, the narrow passage, and the narrow neck, and the narrow all these narrow places, okay, <laughs> then go back to those podcasts. There's four of them, so it's a, it's a, it's a, there's a lot of information there about the geography part of the Book of Mormon. Then it goes through about four more years, 58, 59, and 60, and 61, and then Mormon comments on the Nephite spirituality. And this is where we're focusing on this again for just a couple of minutes before, before we end here. So uh, in verse 11, now this great loss of the Nephites and the great slaughter was among them was not have happened had it not been for the wickedness and their abomination. It was among those who professed to be belong to the church of God. Mm-hmm. So it was actually the, the people who were supposed to be the righteous ones. The main reason for the destruction was not because the rest of the population had become wicked. It's because the membership of the church had become wicked. I, I would so love to know more about what was actually going on there because I've picked up the same concept. They're talking about the people who were members of the church and it's always unrighteousness leads to civil disregard and spiritual downfall. Yeah, exactly. And it actually tells us something about what they were doing. They had riches, they oppressed the poor, withholding their food and the clothing from the hungry, smiting their humble brethren and mocking that which was sacred, denying the spirit of prophecy and revelation. So he tells us, murdering, plundering, lying, stealing, committing adultery. Okay, he, that, he kind of tells us what's going on here. 
And then uh, Nephites uh, see the need for spiritual change. They actually uh, they see that this is this is causing major complications in their society and their culture. And so they actually start to realize, oh my gosh, if we don't change our ways, uh, we're going to go down. Right. And so the Nephites, in great fear, lest they should be overpowered and trodden down and slain and destroyed, they begin to remember the prophecies of Alma. This is in verse 21. Um, then he talks about how the Spirit of God does not dwell in unholy temples, the judgments of God to stare them in the face. <laughs> I kind of feel like that. In fact, I, I wanted to go, go back to a little uh, thing here for just a second. This is kind of how I felt. I, I love this little meme here. It basically, it has uh, Captain Jean-Luc Picard from the start from Star Trek. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> That's and, interesting resource material. <laughs> yeah, at, at, at the beginning he says, how it feels waking up every morning in 2020. He wakes up and goes, damage report. <laughs> what happened overnight now in our country, this, this damage report. Isn't every morning it's, it's like something like that, right? Isn't that what it's like to watch the news every night? Yeah. What happened during the last Yeah, and then, and then that brought me to this other funny meme here. Which is it was just leaked the rest of the calendar for 2020. <laughs> so you see here, you know, January was Australian fires, and February is the locusts in Africa. March was the pan- March and April was the pandemic, and May, and then June the protests and riots, uh, followed by July a solar flare, August the Yellowstone eruption, <laughs> <laughs> September alien invasion, <laughs> <laughs> and then October, November we have the pandemic again, and then uh, December we have the final asteroid. <laughs> oh, but wait a minute, you forgot the elections. Right, <laughs> That well, that's the November there. election thing going on. <laughs> anyway, I, I just thought those were kind of funny. But uh, but back to uh, so what we're talking about here. Um, I mean, this is this, these calamities are happening, and literally the judgments of God are staring them right in the face. Yes. In other words, they're upon them. And I don't know that we're there yet as far as how bad it's going to get. In fact, I know we're not. Even I think close. it'll get worse, but I think we're I think already gonna get seeing a lot worse. Lot, pretty Lots soon. of consequences right here. Yep. It said, therefore, verse twenty-five, the Lord did cease to preserve them by his miraculous and matchless power, because they'd fallen into the state of wickedness. And this all happened in verse, the end of verse um, 26, in the space of not many years. And if we knew more about the Nephite civilization, I think we'd see humanism among them just the same way we're seeing humanism today. Yeah. This uh, turning away from God as the source of information and trust and redemption. Yeah, exactly. And that's exactly what we're going to see now in, in, in Hillman chapter 5, in verse 2. And for as their laws and their governments were established by the voice of the people, and they who chose evil were more numerous than they who chose good. And there's majority rule, and majority rule is always, that's, that's always at the foundation of those Christian principles we talked about. You cannot yeah. have agency and accountability without having, without having a majority rule in there so that the the will of the righteous people will predominate. And when the righteous people no longer predominate in the nation, that's when you get out the broom, as you talked about, and you sweep us off. He says, therefore, they were ripening for destruction. That's right. For the laws have become corrupted, yea, and this was not all. They were stiff-necked people insomuch that they could not be governed by the law nor justice, save it were to their destruction. And the Gadiant robbers are at the heart of a good share of that. Not just the unrighteous uh, Nephites, but also you've got the Gadiant robbers starting to enter in there and uh, 
terrorism yeah. begins to prevail. We're beginning to see it now. Yeah. Um, the, just a couple of other last comments we want to make. Is that he, he kind of goes into another whole um, exhortation here where he's basically saying, obey the commandments, obey the commandments. Oh, and by the way, the obey the commandments. <laughs> That's right. Okay, yeah. Um, but then he says in verse 12, he says, and now, and now my sons, remember, remember, that is upon the rock of our Redeemer, who is Christ, the Son of God, that ye must build your foundation. That when the devil shall send forth his mighty winds, yea, his shafts in the whirlwind, yea, with all his hail and his mighty storm beat upon you, it shall have no power over you to drag you down to the gulf of misery and endless woe, because of the rock which ye are built upon, which is a sure foundation, a foundation whereupon if men build, they cannot fail. Okay, so you I like have to the, call that the firm foundation. Okay, so you have a constitution <laughs> of the United States based on Christian principles, foundationed mm-hmm. on the Declaration of Independence, which is founded on a belief in God as well, and underlying all of that, Christian principles. Exactly. All good law. Every yeah. All good law is going to be based on that. Any system of, of law that does not incorporate those principles is an unwise, unfair, and despotic form of law. Yeah. Excellent, excellent, excellent. There's way. no exception to that. Now, I did want to bring back, bring to people's uh, attention here on uh, in, in that verse 12 that I just read on page 353 in the Annotated Book of Mormon. It talks about these shafts in the whirlwind. And I have a, a good friend of mine, um, many of you probably know uh, Mark Eubanks if you're older. <laughs> he was the KSL <laughs> weather guy uh-huh, for yeah. many, many years, KSL TV here in Salt Lake City, Utah. And when he read that, he said, I, I had a little bit different um, – Idea. He said, shafts in the whirlwind is such an unusual description. It could refer to a number of things, but as a meteorologist, it made me think instantly of severe tornadoes. Oh. Most tornadoes have a single vortex, but, but extra large, or the large and violent tornadoes can have multiple vortices. That is, they have small tornadoes rotating around the periphery of the main tornado. Very. It is these smaller vortices that are so destructive and carry, can carry people away. Helaman didn't say he was in such a tornado, but you would think his description would be something his audience could identify with. This phenomenon is common in the central United States. Nice. Mark Eubanks. Nice. And they got some photos there of a, of a multi-vortice tornado going on. All right. And then uh, to finish up here, we have the imprisonment of Nephi and Lehi. There's a cloud of darkness that overshadows them. The cloud of darkness actually happens after the earth shook violently. And we're going to get into all of that when we get into the destruction of the time of Christ, right. which is coming up here in just another couple of lessons here. So we're not going to talk about that. We'll just talk about that the earth shook and there was this, this solemn overshadow with a cloud of darkness and an awful solemn fear. That cloud of darkness basically returned when Christ um, was crucified in the old world. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to see that. And he talks about this voice of perfect mildness and so forth. Um, let's see. And then we get down to um, they did cry even until the darkness of the darkness was dispersed. They were encircled about by a pillar of fire. And then Helaman chapter 6, the Lamanites actually become more righteous than the, than the, than the Nephites. That's right. And uh, the Lamanites had become the more part of them, a righteous people. The Nephites, on the other hand, had hardened their hearts and were impenitent and grossly wicked. And in fact, it got to the point where um, uh, we also have – there's another um, page here that you need to take a look at, page 357 in the Annotated Book of Mormon, about the, the land south was called Lehi, the land north was called Mulek. And there's an actually chiastic structure in verses 9 through um, 11. Um, and it and talks about the son of Zedekiah. And there's another, another interesting aspect of that uh, Zedekiah there. Um, and and Mulek, who, who was he? 
Um, and there's some, there's some great information about that here as well. Let me see the Sons of Mosiah. Let's see, where is that at here? I mean, anyway, we can't find it right now. <laughs> so let's move forward. We've got to get this finished up here. Um, okay, the Lamanites in verse 20 says, when the Lamanites found that there were robbers among them, what did they do? They got rid of them. The Lamanites got rid of them. They got rid of them. They did not allow them to stay, but the Nephites did allow them to stay. Yep, yep, yep. They did use every means in their power to destroy them off the face of the earth, but the Nephites, they united with those bands of robbers and did enter into their covenants and their oaths that they would protect and preserve one another in whatsoever difficult circumstances they should be placed, that they should not suffer for their murders and their plunderings and their stealings. Now, there's a tipping point right there. You have a tipping point in the Nephite society where they made the decision to go, shall we call it, to the dark side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So you have the Lamanites choosing to stay with light, and you have the Nephites choosing to go with darkness. Yeah. And it's interesting. It says that they should not suffer for their murders and their plunderings and their stealings. What does that sound like? Sounds like rioting to me. Uh, and it also sounds like socialism coming on anyway. Maybe that's yep. not what they're talking about right there, but – yeah. That's involved. So the Gadiantans then become a secret society of law. They actually create their own laws. That's right. So this is the progressive laws. They've replaced the laws that have been That's right. there at the people at this point in time, the law of the, the uh, reign of the judges, and, we and they have, make their own laws. And we have it happening in the United States today. That's exactly yep. what we're doing. We're creating a new form of law. And they had this form of law so that they might more easily murder and plunder and steal and commit whoredoms and have all manner of wickedness to the laws of their country and also to the laws of God. That's right. So they basically circum they were undermining the laws of God. So the Lamanites actually go and they preach to the Gideon robbers. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. And then Mormon finishes up these uh, these last little bit. He says, and thus we see that the Nephites did begin to dwindle in unbelief and grow in wickedness and abominations, while the Lamanites began to grow exceedingly in the knowledge of their God. They did keep the commandments and his statutes and his commandments and, and did walk in truth and uprightness before him. And thus we see that the spirit of the Lord began to withdraw from the Nephites. Yes, we did. And it came to pass that the Lamanites did hunt the better the band of of robbers of Gadianton, and they did preach the word of God among the more wicked part of them, insomuch that this band of robbers was utterly destroyed from among the Lamanites. It came to pass, on the other hand, the Nephites did build them up and support them, begin at the more wicked part of them until they had overspread all the land of the Nephites and had seduced the more part of the righteous until they had come down to believe in their works and partake in their spoils and join with them in their secret murders and combinations. And thus they did obtain the sole management of the government. Right. That's called deep state. It, <laughs> very good. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That's the deep state. The Gadiant robbers had basically taken over control of their government. And yep. so they could more easily steal and commit adultery and, and have all manner of unrighteousness. And thus, they, and thus we see, and this is the final comment, that they were in an awful state and ripening for an everlasting destruction. And I think that's where we are today in our wonderful nation of the United States of America. We are ripening for destruction. Yes, I believe that you are correct. And I, I don't know how other people respond to that, but I find, and Bob finds that as well, when we kneel to say our prayers at night, more and more often we find ourselves pleading with our Heavenly Father to help us in the United States, to bless those who really do want what is right. And our leaders, yeah. To have the yeah. opportunity to bring that about. And uh, we are praying that those who have malintent that their progress will be stopped and they will not be able to go forward. And I would encourage every individual watching this uh, broadcast today to keep that in mind. Pray for your government. Pray for righteousness to prevail 
and then do your part by studying the law, knowing what the Constitution says so you know what it is that we are bound by, and read your scriptures and pour out your heart to your Heavenly Father. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. If you want to know more about it, you can find out uh, from your books and so forth. And where, where do you get those books and things at? Uh, Promisesoftheconstitution.com is our um, website. There we go. This is our book, uh, Promises of the Constitution, where I tell the story of the Constitution in one-and-a-half-page segments. I found people absolutely love that about this book, that it's in short segments, and I've worked hard to make it interesting. One one a day. You can eat an easily a a a page and a half a day. Boom. Five minutes. Five minutes. mastered the material. Every day. Yep. And then there are two additional books that go with it. This one is uh, asks questions about each one of those vignettes. This one gives the answers, plus a lot of additional teaching materials and questions you put those two the these three books together you can teach children you can teach families oh they're wonderful for family home evening <laughs> uh, senior citizens love them we bring the bible scriptures in and document the principles of the constitution according to the bible scriptures and we have had lots of success stories from people on that and then we have three dvds that we have personally created the first of those is called parallels in government where we disca- describe the similarities between the ancient law of Israel, uh, the law of Moses, um, the law of the Nephites, and the United States Constitution. We actually show you slides of the exact replication of constitutional principles in the Book of Mormon. Wow. And then we do this one on the America's Founders, Mentors for Children. We tell lots of fun stories about the Founding Fathers. Uh, We worked hard to make them interesting. You will love the story of Sam Whittemore when you get into there. Uh, And this is a DVD on humanism which we believe, Bob and I, as we've studied it, believe this is the force that's working to destroy America. We believe this is Satan's arm. Awesome. Fantastic. Oh, and I should give you our telephone number, mm-hmm. 801-373-0240. So it's promisesoftheconstitution.com or 801-373-0240. I also would suggest that if you have a, would like to see this, if you're already a, a, a member of the uh, streaming service, uh, just look up uh, Pam uh, on there, Pam Openshaw, and, should, and you should be able to find uh, several other presentations that she has done specifically on this subject here. Uh, also, a couple others that I think are apropos to this is the, is the Stoddard's uh, research on the 4-Day Covenant on the Land, exploring the prophetic parallels in the Book of Mormon. This is... Um, uh, showing how the United States and the Book of Mormon have a parallel history with each other, and for a divinely sanctioned governments, which kind of goes into a similar thing with the uh, the laws of Mosiah and so forth, and, uh, and King Benjamin, um, and comparing that with the the Constitution of the United States, and and what are some of the founding principles that those are based on. So there's some excellent uh, extra resource material for you. Listen, folks, thank you so much. I hope this has been a uh, it's been kind of a whirlwind. We're both we both kind of talk fast, so yeah, so it's hopefully you can keep, you can hear this all right. We could set the world on fire, the two of us. Just <laughs> but we want to thank you for joining us. I hope you're enjoying these podcasts. Again, if you'd hit the like button down below and share this with the, with your neighbors and friends, uh, members of your ward, or other people who you think might uh, might be uh, you know uh, given some additional service by this. Uh, we appreciate the opportunity to share this with you. Um, we love the Book of Mormon, and we de- bear testimony of its truthfulness. We do. Um, and, uh, and so please join us again next week for an awesome uh, podcast and deep dive on, the, on some of the different uh, ideas and doctrines and, and evidences of the Book of Mormon. Thanks, everybody. Have a good day. Thank you. If you like this Come Follow Me supplemental study, 
click the like button and share it with your friends. To learn more about Pamela's book and work, go to promisesoftheconstitution.com where you can book her as a speaker or you can email them at openshawenterprises at gmail.com. Be sure to go to our streaming site, which now has over 100 new videos from our virtual expo, bookofmormonevidencestreaming.com.